Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Boards, Boards, Boards edition. Today, I'm your host. My name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm the Journal's opinion page editor. Your uh, now regular host, Emma Graney, is uh, off enjoying some well-deserved vacation time. I don't know that anybody's ever called Emma regular before. (laughs) (laughs) First, not even here to defend yourself. Oh, I bet we're going to have... She's extraordinary. Oh, there we go. That's very true. So that you've just saved yourself from a nasty call from from abroad. We are today going to talk about a range of stories that involve, you guessed it, boards not board games but boards that involve people we're going to talk about some education boards we're going to talk about some uh, business boards and i guess they're not exactly boards per se but some uh, some things involved in the utility sector as well with uh, renewable energy it is boring oh <laughs> no it is not boring and, and and we promise you will not be bored gentle <laughs> listeners you will not be bored Let's start with education, because we are at the start of the school year. We're only really, you know, a week and a half into it. You didn't introduce us. Oh, I'm sorry. We we don't let her host for a couple of months and she forgets how to do it. With me today (laughs) are city columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Health reform. Health reporter Keith Geron. I actually think you were about to say health reformer Keith Geron. <laughs> oh, wow, I'm not sure how to take that, but but thank you. He's uh, strident. Nice to be here. Strident. Yes. Yep. And education reporter Janet French. Hello, Sarah. Now, can we please get into the important <laughs> stuff, the conversation <laughs> about what's going on in the world? Janet, tell us what is going on at a whole bunch of school boards across Alberta. Things seem to be particularly hot, and it's not just about school fees for once. Yes, uh, I never realized I needed to take a degree in religious studies to cover the education beat, but it might have been a good idea. Couldn't hurt. Um, yeah, so there's a couple things that are simmering this week, possibly boiling soon, we don't know. Uh, today is, of course, the deadline that Education Minister David Egan gave to Pastor Brian Coldwell to uh, hand over some kind of letter or documentation pledging that he will follow the law that when a student asks for a gay-straight alliance in school, that it would be allowed. And Pastor Brian Coldwell is uh, the board chair for two independent schools that are kind of on the outskirts of Edmonton, two Baptist schools. And uh, Coldwell has been kind of one of the main um, authors of some of these big protests uh, in favor of parental rights who have big problems with what they still call Bill 10, um, allowing or requiring schools to form a GSA or Queer Straight Alliance when uh, a student requests one. They feel Alberta education is overstepping their bounds. Yeah, they say that it infringes upon their religious freedoms and that basically requiring them to do this amounts to religious persecution. Okay, so we st- it's still, you know, the day is not over yet on Friday, so we don't know how that's going to play out yet. No, as of this morning, uh, Egan's spokesperson says that she's heard nothing, His her office has heard nothing from Coldwell, uh, but they're giving until the end of the day, whatever that means, and it's a little bit unclear whether you know if he hands his homework in on the weekend whether that'll still be graded or whether it'll be a zero what if what if he doesn't what if he doesn't what's the consequence uh all they will say again and again it's the same line we've heard for probably the last month which is there are a number of opportunities or measures available to us through the education act so what they won't specify which possible measures they might exercise i think they're really hoping he'd reply so if this, if this was the only issue, that would be one thing. It would obviously be a story. Mm-hmm. But it seems like other stories along this line are springing up elsewhere in the yeah, province. Religion what's, what's also in Northern Alberta? very... Oh, Northern Alberta. Oh, you want to do that one first? Okay. 
So earlier this week in Grand Prairie, uh, there is a school district, a rural school division called Peace Wapiti School Division, and parents handed in a petition to the school district saying that they uh, did not agree with the LGBTQ-friendly policy that that school district has passed. Now, um, when I showed it to Dr. Christopher Wells, who works at the University of Alberta uh, and has is kind of a you know LGBTQ rights advocate. Mm-hmm. He said their policy is really good. He would give it an A plus. It's it's follows the guidelines that the minister has set out. So he thinks the school board has has done a very good job. Yeah, he okay. does. However, uh, some parents do not. It's the same refrain we've heard from other parts of the province where they're concerned about uh, well religious freedoms and also sharing bathrooms. So what what if a trans student uh, wants to go into the bathroom with their child they have a concern about this they don't they don't really want to necessarily have them share washrooms uh and also the parents want to know if their children join a, G- a gsa they want the the school staff to inform them so what they did was they handed in this petition which automatically prompts this special meeting uh which was held in sexsmith on tuesday so at that meeting the parents uh, voted to it's not just parents it's it's other voters as well they've they voted to form a committee which will now have a closer look at that policy so they have 30 days to go through and give recommendations non-binding ones to the school board what do you think about this paula well, that, that this is you know it's a couple months after the fact now that this policy has been turned in is this just the beginning of are we going to see more parents across the province do, doing this sort of thing oh i think we are and i think you know I think this is part of an evolutionary process. We've talked about this before, and I've said you can't expect people to make this leap necessarily all in one step, but there is a huge difference to my mind between a private Baptist school and a public school division. I mean, I I think in a public school division, there is no question that you have to conform with provincial law to every last jot and tittle of it. Uh, Now, that's not to say that parents don't have a right to organize and to have a meeting and to be angry and to express their views and an opportunity at that meeting one hopes to also hear from the other side so that maybe they can see that it's going to be okay this is going to be all right in in peace river wapiti it's going to be fine uh i don't necessarily think that i want to come down too hard on them for organizing a meeting and for getting together and to air you know the airing of grievances is is not a it's an important part of the democratic process But at the end of the day, they're going to have to decide. They are part of a public school division. If they don't want to follow the rules, if they want to break away and start their own private schools, that's their prerogative. That's where their parental rights begin and end, though. They don't have a parental right to say that gay kids can be persecuted in their school division. That is not going to happen. And one thing that uh, the Grand Prairie reporter had quoted the parents as saying is that they were super concerned that they were be they were going to be persecuted for being religious that there's there's a lot of talk in this policy which is very detailed compared to some school districts uh about any sign of bullying will be thoroughly investigated and um and dealt with and they're worried that their children are going to be it's going to be a blowback and they're going to be called bigots because they grew up in a religious household and they don't uh they don't accept that some people um are born gay or born transgender Hmm. You know, this is this is always going to be a difficult, evolutionary, compromising endpoint that we get to. I am equally opposed to bullying and uh, alienating kids who come from religious families and who are entitled to their private religious beliefs. 
And if kids are being bullied on that basis, that is also wrong. And that should also be dealt with uh, quickly by teachers and by principals. I mean, all bullying is bad. All prejudice is bad. But one doesn't get to trump the other. So then what should we make of what's happened at in Wetaskiwin, where there is another issue not involving gay-straight alliances, but... Keith, Janet, somebody give me a rundown on what that story is. Well, uh, Janet wrote the story, but I, th- I thought this was maybe of the, the three stories, this was maybe the most shocking or most uh, surprising one, that there is a school, a public school in Wetaskiwin where they are still saying the Lord's Prayer at the at the start of the day. Is it just this one school? No. Well, no, it appears no. to be more, but uh, the controversy came out at the one school because some parents there asked, asked the school to review it, and in fact, they are going to cancel that practice uh, starting next week, Yeah, I as of Monday. Yeah, so that was surprising to me that the Lord's Prayer is still being recited in public schools in Wetaskiwin. Maybe elsewhere in the province, we don't know because no one's really asked the question for a while. No, I mean this is. The, I mean I've written about this over the years in, in other public schools in uh, one uh, outside of Saint Albert where they were still saying the Lord's Prayer, and people were you know really quite appalled at the idea that they should be forced to stop worshiping Jesus in their public school, and. You know, it, it's difficult because they, they said to Janet uh, in Wetaskiwin things like, well, you know, what right do you have to teach our children what to believe? And you're like, no, see, you have this backwards. You don't have the right to impose the prayer of one faith on all kids in an ecumenical, secular public school. Now, I would say that you have an absolute right to have prayer in your school if you've, as a parent, opted to have your kid in a Logos Christian program, if you've opted to have your kid go to a, a different school that has a, a, a Christian faith background uh, in, here in Edmonton, whether that's a Catholic school or a, a Dutch reform school that's part of the public system, I think it's perfectly reasonable for kids in Hutterite colonies and Mennonite communities to say prayer in the school where you've got a homogeneous Christian population of parents who have opted for that kind of education. What's not fair is for the state acting through a school board to impose Christianity in a secular multicultural school where lots of kids might be Muslim or Sikh or Jewish or Buddhist or agnostic or just not want to pray in public. Uh, I mean, the, the time of public rote prayer should be done. And I've never understood why, if I were a Christian, I would want to make a bunch of non-believers mouth the sacred words I mean, surely if you're a Christian, that should be blasphemous. Well, was there any talk about any kind of compromise? The idea that, like they used to do at City Hall, and I guess don't anymore because of a Supreme Court ruling, you have different faiths rotate through. You say one prayer one day, and then a prayer from another faith the other day, or reflections from another spiritual element uh, another well, day. Well, the, the parents were interested in kind of com- trying to come up with a compromise. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about it is that there is already, there's a large number of students who go to that school, um, which is called Ecole Parkdale, who go from Masquachis. And so they have smudges and other sacred ceremonies, like First Nation ceremonies. But not all students do those. They're off in a separate room, and anyone who wants to join can go do them. But meanwhile, everybody's being ushered in. And, you know, potentially on an instructional time, when they're supposed to be learning, they're singing O Canada, saluting the flag, and reciting the Lord's Prayer. Uh, and so that was the the parents' concern as well. Could we not, you know, we don't have a problem if other people want to pray in school. Like, sure, give them a space for that. But why does everyone have to do it? And the other issue that I found was really interesting, and there's this common theme um, among when I looked at other cases of this in Alberta and other parts of Canada, is that 
consent. There's no consent. Is that all parents who discovered this thought they were relatively informed about what was going on in their child's school and stumbled across it and thought, you know, my child needs to, I need to fill out a special permission form if the Gideons are going to come and talk about the Bible in school, but they don't need to sign a permission form for this. Mm. Has this been settled then without the education minister having to get involved or is this Uh, moved up to Alberta education as well? It sounds like it in this particular school. And the parents said they weren't surprised because they really love the school. They love the principal and they thought this was kind of an anomaly for the general culture of the school. Um, but whether it's settled in the school board at the school board level, it is not. So the parents, uh, there's a policy on the books at the school board that cites two sections of the human Alberta Human Rights Act that have been repealed, and uh, it also says that the school board encourages cere- opening ceremonies and religion in schools. And they say, well, why does a public school have a policy on the books encouraging religious instruction? You know, there's a really interesting parallel here. We talk about parental rights, and I think there's an interesting parallel with gay-straight alliances. I mean, imagine if the rules were that every child had to join a gay-straight alliance because it would be good for them to be exposed to this idea of openness and tolerance. Now, then, I think the parents might have an argument that that's the state forcing a doctrine on you. Yeah, I think they would, too. But So I would no more favor forcing everybody to join a gay-straight alliance than I would favor forcing everybody to say a prayer. Parental rights should extend, though, to all parents, not just to Christian parents. And as a parent, I should have a parental right to say that my child should not be forced to have religious instruction and a faith that is not mine, in the same way that a Christian parent should be able to exercise a parental right not to have their child taught something that they profoundly disagree with. But then that's the... In, in that case, that's different than asking for your religion to be imposed on everyone. And uh, that, that, I think, is what the, the parents in Peace Wabadi are saying. I mean, they don't just want their kids to be excused. They want their Christian views uh, superimposed on everyone. And that is not fair, not, not in 2016. Hmm. I was just going to say that um, there is an opt-out provision for the Lord's Prayer. And I think that applies... I, I can't, I've never heard of a school division where that does not apply. However, how can you opt out of something you don't know is happening? Right. That's that's the issue. And it happens that they're in every classroom? Is it played over the well, and uh, that I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on that. I think perhaps it's classroom by classroom is what they say. Oh. So, so the school board didn't even, wasn't even able to tell me what other schools had prayers. Oh, well, each school decides for themselves and they consult with parents and and sometimes it's even just one class or two classes in a school, and we don't really know. Hmm. You wonder how far it's it's going to go, though, because, you know, O Canada is still part of the, the morning routine, right? And it has the lyric, God, you know, God keep our yeah. land. Some schools still say, uh, sing God save the queen at the start of the day. Um, the, I mean, these are things that I, some parents may grapple onto as, as well. I, I remember a controversy from the University of Alberta years ago about the convocation address, which... Uh, at that point had students say that they would have to use their degree for the glory of God or something to that effect and that was taken out after uh, after quite a protest from from atheists and agnostics and and other students uh, at at the university so I mean there is I think a a larger brewing controversy here about uh, all of these things the Lord's Prayer is probably the most you know sort of uh, um, extreme example of that, but there are other things, uh, other religious references, Christian religious references, still embedded in public school. Well, the one thing about Alberta is that you can guarantee if you're an education reporter, you will never be bored. So never a dull moment. Thank you for all of those updates, and we'll watch to see where all those various stories go along with the larger themes that Keith was talking about there at the end. 
Now, there are other boards to talk about as well. In this case, it interestingly involved the status of women minister bringing up an issue related to uh, corporate boards. What was she talking about, Keith? Well, this is the Alberta Securities Commission, and and, um, there is a a movement from that group to have um, uh, companies uh, disclose how many women they have serving on their boards and within their executive ranks. Uh, And presumably they want to do this so that uh, investors can get a good idea of the character of companies. And uh, as, as they pointed out, there are only three provinces that do not have policies like this, Alberta, PEI and British Columbia. Um, so it's, it's an interesting idea, and it does sound like it has um, caught the attention of our status of women, Minister Stephanie McLean here. Good idea, bad idea. I know what I think, but I'll let you guys go first. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that you'd think that in 2016 you wouldn't need to do. I mean, in some ways, as, in some ways as a feminist, it kind of bothers me because I think you should be selected for a board based on your merit and in 2016 we shouldn't need to have affirmative action anymore and yet apparently we still do so the pragmatic person in me says if this perhaps shames some companies into uh, increasing the diversity of their boards maybe that's not a wholly bad thing and yet at the same time they're private companies and i guess for me well the, 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 the cutting off point is that if the government were telling them they had to add more women to their boards, that I would oppose. If what the government is saying, you have to be transparent about who's on your board, then I guess, since these are publicly traded companies, that's not an unreasonable expectation. Yeah, I mean, don't you think it's crazy that we, this basic information isn't out there? And, and Jenna, you made a good point earlier where you were talking about uh, how the their name, or one of you made a good point earlier before we started rolling tape about <laughs> the fact that, well, the names of boards of directors are out there. That's public information. So why isn't that enough? Yeah, Paula made that point. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Paula, I'm sorry. I'm sure. <laughs> so many. I'm, I'm so pointy. But, but I mean, I, and what Keith said to me is that some people, you know, use their initials. And I think what Sarah said to me is that some people are named Leslie and some people, you know, are named Ashley and some people are named Sydney and then you don't know what right. their gender is. And that's the boards, right? That's not the executive ranks. Mm-hmm. And so often the the top executives are well known in companies, but the people uh, maybe at the second tier of the executive level are not known as well. And so that a rule like this would help disclose those kind of numbers. Yeah, because I, I think that the, the balance right now of corporate boards is extremely out of whack. We write a lot about that way women are represented in politics. And I know over the years I've written numerous stories about groups advocating for more work getting women on corporate boards to reflect diversity, to reflect the fact that, well, they're just smart women who can, you know, contribute to this part of the discussion. I mean, you, you would think out of pragmatic self-interest that if you were a, a, you know, a corporate board of directors, you would want to have smart people from a diverse range of backgrounds with a diverse range of skill sets who would make your board governance better. I mean, in 2016, we shouldn't still have to be having this discussion. Yeah, so our, our colleague Stuart Thompson, who wrote on this, I just was, if you heard paper shuffling, it was me looking for his exact stat. And he wrote that in 2015, women held 9% of board positions for Alberta companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange. 
that's really, really low. It is, and, and, and I think particularly low among industrialized nations as well. So it, it's, it's, it is quite shocking. I, I think the, the bigger question, though, is if we do disclose this, does this actually change investor it's, it's, behavior? Or board behavior. Or board behavior, I mean, are we actually going to shame people into putting more, I mean, putting more women on their boards? I suppose the best you could hope is that it might be a wake-up call, because when you see that number 9%, I mean, that's truly shocking. Uh, and it shouldn't be hard to find women in their 40s and 50s in this day and age who have lots of experience and lots of gravitas to bring to a board, not as token, not to put them there because of their gender, but to put them there because they'd make your board better. I mean, maybe if you just wake people up and, and make them go, oh, yes, actually, there's half the human race we hadn't considered. But also make the company's culture um, and amenable to women, some of whom probably are qualified but don't want to serve in that kind of environment dominated by men and, and structured for men. Uh, I, I suspect that is part of the issue why we do not see uh, higher numbers above 9%. So the question I have, though, is why just look at women? If we're concerned about underrepresentation of minorities or people groups who have been disadvantaged in the corporate world, why not look at the percent of First Nations people? That's a good point why not too, look yeah. at LGBTQ point. representation? That is a good point. I mean, all of these points, I should add for our listeners, apparently the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission is, sorry, just the Securities Commission, is looking for feedback on this. So we have a month to uh, give our input as uh, members of the public if we'd like to. We should just send them this tape in. (laughs) Apparently they considered this in 2014 and decided, no, they would not ask companies to give this information. So we're back again two years later. Hmm. See if we get a different... New government. Maybe that's the change. Maybe. Another change. Well, this is something, as I said in an editorial, that has been written in pencil in terms of uh, an NDP commitment and is now permanently etched in stone as uh, the renewable energy commitments that the province wants to make. They have said that by 2030, 30% of Alberta's energy will come from renewable sources. What do you guys think about this? As a, as let me ask you, if you were just like not wearing your reporter hat, Janet, and you heard, okay, the government is is saying this, how would you feel about that? Like as as an Albertan, good, bad, eh? how? Yeah, I just yeah, that's I just always come back to how. And that is a good question. I think that's yeah. what we're all. <laughs> I, well, I think that was the major criticism, right? Is that they were mm. light on the how, and, and they're still they're still yeah. light on the how. And that was the announcement this week: is they they still don't have a lot of meat on the bones there. You know, the the problem is, I mean, it sounds so cute. 30%, 30 by 30. And as Easy as, to remember. As, as soon as I hear that, I go, really? Is that a policy? Or did we just think that was a really cute marketing slogan, 30 by 30? I mean, of course, I think that's a fine goal to set. Um, you know, 30% from renewables. Probably it doesn't even sound crazy until you actually think about practically. How do you get that energy on the grid? How do you get that energy to market? How do you get that energy to be reliable uh, when we know that there are certain things, you know, like like wind power that are going to have peaks and valleys of, of when they're ex- available to us? So, you know, uh, aspirational goals. Aspirational goals are fine. And to say that you're striving for 30% by 3030, but I worry a little bit when you promise that you'll be at 30% by 3030, that you may be setting yourself up to fail and setting yourself up to a cynical backlash so that, you know, if you get to 20%, then people perceive it as a failure. If you're phasing out coal-fired power plants, though, which make up, you know, almost 40% of the current energy supply in Alberta, don't you have to fill it with something? 
Well, I suppose that's one way to make the math work. Mm-hmm. If you just produce less of the other kind of energy. Well, you have to, yeah. right? Well, Something well, nat- has to fill the void. Well, na- natural gas is, is going to fill a lot of it. But yes, they would like to move to this wind, solar, uh, and so on um, as, as ways of, of, of kind of um, uh, topping it up, if you will. Uh, but there was a, an interesting article written by our colleague uh, Chris Varco at the Calgary Herald this week about some of the costs that this might have. Uh, and so shutting down the coal, he has suggested, or the, the industry is suggesting, uh, so take it for what it's worth, that it might be $2 billion in compensation to shut down these coal plants early. That That's sort of a, a figure that's been put out there that the government might have to pay. And then as part of their renewable strategy, one of the ideas that's been put out there is a, a lot of companies will bid for renewable projects, to r- bid to put in solar, bid to put in wind. And the government will will pay for some of this uh, or help them with some of this. But the companies aren't going to invest uh, because power prices are so low right now. They're not going to invest unless they get a guarantee from the government that they will top up their income so that, that they get guaranteed income. Haven't we been down this road before? Well, exactly. <laughs> yes. And this is where it gets dangerous. Um, and because uh, Chris Varco's article quotes a figure of about $10 billion, that's what it might end up costing uh, potentially uh, to top up these companies so that they get they meet their guaranteed income. So, I mean, if that's the case, 10 billion is a lot of money. Some of it could come from this carbon tax that the, the NDP is going to introduce, but uh, I'm not sure that they've covered their bases there. And the opposition certainly went after them on that point this week as well. One thing I wonder if we might see a door open is um, the ability to buy and sell energy from your own home to the grid. That That's one thing I Maybe, maybe I just haven't been listening very carefully. No, I feel like no, we no. haven't heard much about that. But right now, if you if you have solar panels on your house and you make more than you need, you can't sell it back to the power system. And uh, it may be piecemeal. Maybe it's only enough to run your neighbor's fridge or whatever. But if you add up all of Alberta and make incentives for people to retrofit their homes to produce energy, then you know could that be one option as See, the coal all, replacement? What we all need are those desks where you like walk on a treadmill while you're working and for you so many reasons power you power your own computer just i'm sure we can keep the lights can you on imagine if i came up to you paula guess what you to get your column out tomorrow you're gonna have to walk 10 miles yeah. well janet your, your idea the government i think is actually looking at that there's a, there's some uh group that they're um, creating i can't remember it's not the climate change office there's another name that they've come up with that is going to look at exactly those kind of things consumer incentives yeah, um, micro generation that's micro generation those kind of things uh, but what what we've heard so far is that solar power it is not cost effective right now uh, it is not the price point hasn't come down uh, to the point where it is actually economical for most people to install this on, on their house yet so whether the government will subsidize that we don't know how much they'll have to subsidize but uh, it is on the radar from what they say that's so much money out of the public purse I mean I think and here's the problem I mean there is a general social consensus that we need to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. We need to transition off coal, not just for greenhouse gas reasons, but because of, of other pollutants that it, it produces. So everybody can agree that that's a fine thing. And now when it comes down to the nitty gritty of making it happen, it's a lot of sacrifice in human lifestyle, and it's a huge bite out of the public exchequer. I mean, if we're gonna use you know, the resource revenues, which we don't have anymore, um, <laughs> to underwrite this, uh, that's a huge public policy decision. And I'm not sure that even people who who wear an environmental banner proudly really understand the potential downstream costs 
of changing our economy and our lifestyle in, in a way that would actually make a substantive difference to the pace of climate change. I know that I had personally not paid a lot of attention to the, all the many, many stories out of Ontario about their uh, various controversies that came from their decision to get out of coal. That part wasn't controversial, but it seems every step along the way that it took was. But now, in their throne speech this week, the Liberal government announced that they're going to have to do another subsidy program to offset the cost of electricity there now, because I guess it's such a it's become such a hot issue for voters. So that's going to be a billion dollars a year that they're going to spend to offset the cost of electricity in that province. So it's crazy to have the money coming out of your pocket in one side and just sliding it back in on the other. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's interesting to uh, Rachel Notley and, and Philip Couillard, the premier of uh, Quebec, are going to appear together next week in New York City at a climate change week. It's called Climate Climate Week New York City. And they are going to be, I, I, I hear, speaking at the opening ceremonies, uh, whether together or separate. But those are the two Canadian premiers who are going to be representing Canada at this climate change I'm penciling. Conference. I'm penciling in the topic for next <laughs> yeah. week's schedule right now. I, I suppose we can we can take a moment here just and just pause and think how extraordinary it is to think that Alberta's premier is out on the world stage as a champion of climate change uh, revolution. So I mean that's good. That's, that's good. True. That's good for our public image. It's good for that. I'm going to stop saying the word social license because it doesn't seem to to get us any pipelines built. But um, I, I do wonder if people really. I'm not saying that we don't need to do these things. I'm just saying that it is not going to be pleasant and it is not going to be easy. And these are choices that we're making and they may well be the right choices. But if people think that we can get to climate change by making other people suffer and not having to, to tighten our own, uh, our own carbon belts, uh, they are mistaken. Well, in this case, we only have to wait 14 years to find out. What I do not have to wait 14 years for is your good stuff from the gallery. Let's move to our final segment. If you are a Facebook friend with me, you will already know that I like this. I'm going to recommend a piece that was on NewYorkTimes.com. It's a video, and it's a video op-ed by Jay-Z. Jay-Z himself does not appear except for his voice. And the video is about how the war on drugs is an epic failure. Um, it talks about, and uh, the subhead of it is, why white men are poised to get rich doing the same thing African-Americans have been doing. What I really liked about it, one, has a strong point of view, it was an opinion piece, and two, it was amazingly illustrated. The As he reads his op-ed and his opinion on this, the, the drawings are done out before you. They were obviously recorded on video, and you see the person drawing out the pictures, and it was just a really powerful piece. So I recommend taking a look at that. All right. Keith, what do you want to uh, talk about? I have uh, something from uh, Politico magazine uh, written by uh, Garrett M. Graff, who I don't know, but uh, I will look for more of his work after this because it's called uh, We're, Only, We're the Only Plane in the Sky. And it is the tale of the people who were on Air Force One on September 11, 2001, when the terrorist attacks were occurring. And a lot of these people are speaking about that for the first time, those hours in the air uh, in Air Force One when the president, George W. Bush, was trying to deal with the immediate uh, uh, threat and immediate aftermath of the, of the terrorist attacks. And it's just very powerfully written. Uh, all these different pe uh, points of view are woven together to kind of recreate the day uh, in, in that 747 in the air. 
Oh, that's amazing. And I guess it's the 15th anniversary. It was last week, 15th that's anniversary right. yeah. of September 11th. So it's interesting people are finally talking about that. I haven't heard much about what happened on that plane. That's right. In those hours. Paula, what would you like to throw at us? I have a, a beautiful uh, piece to recommend. It comes from the Indian newspaper Live Mint, which is a sister publication of the Wall Street Journal. And it is a beautifully packaged series about the impact of sports on the lives of young women in India, inspired in part by the fact that Indian women won the only medals that, uh, that India scored at the Brazil Olympics. And it deals with the fact that in Indian culture, it is still uh, really taboo in many ways for young women to engage in competitive sports. And so this series went to different parts of India, different uh, ethnocultural communities within India, looked at the way sports like cricket and field hockey and soccer were transforming the lives of young women, empowering them, giving them chances to, to escape from poverty, giving them a sense of self-worth. It's put together so beautifully. And uh, one of the authors, uh, Navita Bandara, is a classmate of mine from, from my Stanford University days. But uh, this is just a really powerful package, and it's about politics on a very different level. Oh, that sounds really good. Thanks for suggesting it. Janet, wrap it up for us. Okay, I'm going to make an education-related suggestion. It's a because shocker. why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there is a website in the U.S. called Chalkbeat, oh. one of several sites that does just education-based reporting. And uh, this is a, it's a little bit older of a piece, but it's kind of making the rounds again on social media this week um, about a woman who, you know, did the typical... Brooklyn mom thing moved into a specific neighborhood to get her precious son into a particular school and her name is Christy Stewart and uh, then uh, it turns out she did not get her son into the fancy school she got her son into a school full of minorities and how she ended up challenging all of her own assumptions about why this was a bad thing and how it really changed her view on the ethnocultural mix of New York interesting yeah. So I hadn't heard of Chalkbeat before, but oh. I'll find it, it in bookmark It's awesome. Check it out. Neat. Thank you. Thanks for all those recommendations, everyone. And thank you to the Press Gallery listeners for listening. We are so glad to have you with us. And you can tell your friends. You can find us on edmontonjournal.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast in all kinds of places. iTunes, TuneIn Radio. And then when we are ready, we will download it and the episode will be right there for you. Thanks to Sean Butts, who filmed a video segment for us today. And you can find that on edmontonjournal.com as well. Have I forgotten anything from the usual? You forgot something super important did i thank did i thank you for oh, your guests no, oh, did, no. I, I, for, no, no, did no. I forget to say goodbye to you all individually <laughs> what did i screw up now you forgot to say that this week the press gallery was nominated for a canadian online publishing award for best journalism yeah, that's we're a finalist that's very exciting that's right uh, uh, thank you paula and therese keller for entering us <laughs> we did this while sarah was out of town uh Literally, Sarah Sarah was on vacation, and I listened back through hours and hours and hours of press galleries, and Teresa and I picked out what we thought were the very best ones, and so, yes, we are shortlisted for a Canadian Online Publishing Award. Go us. And go listeners for listening and helping us uh, be on the air since 2013, which is pretty darn exciting. So thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week in the press gallery.